Whether you create comics or simply enjoy reading them, you can never underestimate the power of honesty. Honesty in a piece of work can lead to a greater connection with the audience and can bring even the most fantastical of fiction to life with startling reality. When I talk about honesty, I'm really talking about two things. Firstly, there's the idea of the reader finding something in a piece of work that resonates with them, that speaks to a part of their life and makes them see things with greater clarity than before. Secondly, there's the kind of honesty that comes directly from the creator themselves, where an artist opens themselves up and explores aspects of their own life through the work that they create. More often than not, these two versions of honesty are two halves of a whole. The latter idea, though, demands that the creator open themselves up in a way that can make them emotionally vulnerable. After all, we as the audience are witnessing aspects of a creator's life that they perhaps are only just examining. That in turn, however, does create a bond of sorts between the reader and the creator. That genuine vulnerability, that real open honesty, resonates through a comic and can form a connection with a reader that can last a lifetime. I'm Matt Loon, and today on the show, I'm joined by Nola Fow and Lucy Sullivan to discuss honesty and vulnerability in the comics that are important to them. This is That's the Issue. I'm Nola Fow. I'm the editor-in-chief of Women Write About Comics. My first published comics work is going to be in Bun and Tea, the Kickstarter for which is live now. And yeah, that's me. I'm Lucy Sullivan. I'm an artist and author. Um, I've just finished the crowdfunding on my debut graphic novel, Barking, which will be published by Unbound in March 2020 and launched at this year's Lakes International Comic Art Festival both welcome to the show uh thank you for joining me uh it is uh, it's really great to speak to you both um i know it's uh, it's been a while for for me and you nola to uh, to get our heads down to chat um and also uh, and you lucy it's lovely to speak to you both thanks for having me um, yeah yeah, so, yeah it's um nola it's i'll start with you um as you said in your intro you're the new editor-in-chief of women write about comics um so tell me about your journey to get to that position so you've been writing for the site for a while haven't you for a couple of years now, um, I've been managing editor for about a year, which I'm not really sure how I ended up in that position. So <laughs> it's, uh, I'm very much it's it's very much a case of one of those things where I just show up and do things and offer to do things, and suddenly people are like, "Okay, well, you can be an editor now." All yeah. right, I guess. <laughs> so you didn't have any editing experience before you took the position. Uh, no, I didn't even have that much writing experience when I started at the, at the site, which is, I mean, like I wrote a lot, but I wrote a lot personally. Mm. And so like I hadn't had any experience working with uh, editors or any kind of a team or all of that. So it's it's been a very, very steep learning curve, uh, right. but one that I really enjoyed. So, yeah. Did you find much, um, as you say, like a steep learning curve? How did you find the difference between kind of just writing for fun and writing for like a site like Women Write About Comics? It has it's it's been interesting because mostly it is writing for fun. Like this Mm. is this is what I like to do. Nobody at Women Write About Comics gets paid. Uh, Nobody 
nobody makes any money off of that. So we're all there because we want to be there. It's it's a volunteer organization. But, you know, uh, in the course of that, you sometimes have to cover things that you don't necessarily want to. You know, I've certainly had to write about things that I do not appreciate writing about. Right. And uh, I think the biggest learning curve is just learning to to buckle down and do that, uh, which is, you know, it's not really any different than any time you've had to write for an assignment or anything like that. It's you're pulling from the same place. You say, you know, you don't want to do this, but you got to sit down and get it done. Yeah. I've learned a lot about writing honestly and writing, which, you know, uh, when I say honestly, I don't mean just telling the truth, but I mean like writing, you know, from the heart, uh, writing in ways that leave me vulnerable mm. in a way, um, which has, it's been kind of eye opening. And I, I really think that it's, it's helped my writing overall to do that. That can be the, some of the most difficult to do though, isn't it really? I mean, you talked about things that you, you know, you were assigned that not necessarily you wanted to write, but in a way that, I don't know, I, I, I'm, I suppose I'm, I'm asking you, I suppose really, is that kind of work easier than the kind of stuff where, you you open yourself up or is it has it become easier over time to to uh, write more vulnerable pieces uh it's become well i guess it's become a little bit easier uh it's mostly that i'm very bad at separating the two so mm -hmm. even when i'm writing about things that i don't want to write about uh i'm doing it from a place where it's personal to me which you know i guess isn't the way that everybody does it but for me, the personal connection is how I is how I get my writing done. Um, and usually I'm upfront about that when I when I have to write about something I don't like. I'll, that's usually right in my opening paragraph. Uh, <laughs> I'm just I'm blunt about it. I'm honest when I don't like something. I say so. Yeah. And I get it out of the way because I don't want to be one of those writers who harps on the things that I don't like. I just I like to establish it as a fact so that I can then move on to talking about it. Mm. I also don't think that that's a prerequisite for writing about something. I think that uh, there are a lot of people out there that will, you know, like writing about things that they like, you know, or like writing about things that they are able to, to gush about or to say this is amazing and here's why. But I also think it's important to, you know, to have that other perspective of, you know, this I am the here's where I'm coming from and here's what I thought of it. But I suppose it's just all ultimately it's just about honesty, isn't it, really, in, in the work that you do? Yeah. You know, both uh, factual honesty and and emotional honesty. You have to be upfront about the way it make a thing makes you feel if you want to be taken seriously. I think uh, if you want to be if you want people to really understand you, I guess. And how does that um, honesty and vulnerability transfer over to the role of editor in chief? How do you think those kind of skills will you know will benefit you, or or you know how, will will they hinder you in any way? Do you think? Well, uh, I don't think that they do. I, uh, I try to establish a reputation for for that. Uh, I try to establish a reputation as a person who can be counted on both to say what she means and to, you know, when I when I promise I'm going to do something, I, I try to be there and make sure that it gets done. So as far as working as an editor, um, I have a pretty good relationship with my team, I think. At least if any of them don't like me, they haven't said so. So. <laughs> that's that's always good <laughs> honesty and a touch of fear from your staff that's surely that's, that's what you that's what you crave <laughs> touch of touch of fear of my staff in in return though like that's I it, work yeah. with some really really smart people 
uh, and it's it's pretty great. Uh, the, the nice thing about Women Write About Comics is, like I said, because it's a volunteer organization, everybody's there because they want to be. Mm. So you don't have a situation where somebody is just showing up to because they feel like a sense of obligation. If you don't want to be there, you don't have to be. Mm. Uh, and and it, it's a good thing, I think, because it it creates a community of people who are really invested in what we're trying to accomplish and, and in, in the voice that we're trying to put out there. Mm. And I mean, I, I like that a lot. It, it, it's reassuring to me and it, 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 it creates a kind of connection, I think. I think it's a tough line to walk as well, isn't it? Because I've, uh, I've written, you know, extensively for sites that are, you know, they, they, they don't have a, a revenue. They don't, they don't pay to, to write for them. You know, I'd, I'd work for free and it's, it's difficult for a writer and for an editor as well, I imagine, because you, you know, you want people to feel as though this is their space. This is, you know, you're not paying them. So it's not like you can, you know, crack the whip in any kind of um, in any kind of way that would be like, well, actually, you know, you're fired <laughs> or anything like that. But at the same time, right. you want people to, you know, a, a functioning site needs to have discipline. It has to have structure. It needs to have those deadlines. Um, so, you know, people the the best kind of people that I've worked with and the best kind of way I've approached doing work like that is to treat it like it is a job, you know, not in the kind of negative or, yes. you know, I don't want to turn up, but, you know, you have to treat it with that kind of discipline, don't you? Which, which can be difficult for, for sites that don't pay. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, as anyone, on, as, as anyone on the site will tell you, like, I'm the first person to crack a joke. I'm the first person to, to make the irreverent comments. It's just, I can't stop it. It's like a, like a, thing with me you know it's mm. just it's how i respond to things and i don't think that you have to eliminate that i don't think that you have to to prevent yourself from having fun but i think that you're right because you have to find a way to motivate people you have to wait you have to find a way to blend that fun with getting the job done and i try to do that i try to i try to let people be themselves and also say okay but you know here's what we got to get done i'm not going to tell you guys you have to do it but somebody's got to do it yeah so so i had um claire napier on a few episodes back um and she was uh, a previous editor-in-chief uh, for women write about comics and she talked about her experiences um and you know the responsibilities of running a site um how have you kind of approached that responsibility how have you have you prepared in any way for it or have you just kind of jumped straight in um, I kind of jumped straight in. Uh, like I said, I was managing editor beforehand. Uh, it was actually Claire who first made me uh, an assistant editor, uh, which, you know, big shoes to fill there. Uh, Claire is a force of nature. Um, and I I will not hesitate to admit that I kind of idolize her a little bit. <laughs> she is wonderful. Uh, yeah, she's, she's great. Uh, so coming in as somebody with, like I said, less experience than some people, um, not knowing what I'm doing and jumping right in is sort of just the way I do things. Uh, so, you know, that's fine. Hmm. I, I have people around me who have more experience. And when I, when I don't know something, when I haven't learned something, you know, I make sure to, to, to ask. Um, I work with Wendy, who's our publisher, Wendy Brown. Uh, and she's, she's fantastic too. She's real organized. We're, we're real good at filling in for each other. You know, like we've each got our strengths and we kind of work together to, to get those covered. So mm. that's good. It's good to have a good team around you and um, like kind of a, 
you know, strengths and weaknesses of everyone that pulls each other together. Yes. You talked earlier about the the voice of the site and the you know the the direction that the site is is going. And do you have any kind of ideas now that you're you know in charge of steering the ship, for want of a better word? You know what kind of direction you want to move the site in? You you know do you do you have any kind of impact on or any idea of what kind of impact you want to you want to make on that? I don't like I don't really have a way to to explain that outright. I mean I do. I do want to make an impact, but I, I haven't really figured out what that is yet. Uh, yeah. Women Write About Comics was started as uh, a response to, you know, there were people who were asking, well, where are the women who write about comics? Where are the people who, where are the women in this industry? Uh, and there was, there was a lot of talking over the fact that women were already there and were already doing it. Uh, and so the site was started literally as an answer to that, as a way to bring those women together and to unify their voices and amplify those voices through unification. Right. Um, sounding a lot like a like an X-Men comic right now. Uh, <laughs> but it's so for me, uh, it's very much about legitimizing that that stance and that voice. Uh, it's very much about making sure that we're heard and and making sure that we're uh respected and when i say respected i mean i want the industry at large to take the team that i work with seriously mm. um i want uh the women and you know uh the non-binary folk and the trans mask folk and all of the individuals who come to work right for us i i want them to have a place i want them to have a way forward in this industry, which is often very focused on white cishet men. Mm. And so uh, it's for me, it's very important that we give voices to people who have not otherwise had a chance to raise theirs. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the site is fantastic. And I think it's there are so many articles on there that provide something, as you say, that is is lacking in you know in in media and in and in comics criticism especially because it's always been there it's just as you say you you just don't hear it and it is great to to have a site that is championing those those voices and 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 being able to to read those articles and to read those viewpoints um has has been fascinating and has increased my enjoyment of the comics that are being discussed because it provides that kind of alternative information that i wouldn't have found otherwise thank you very much for saying that uh that is that's maybe one of the best things that i can hear uh because we write out of a place of love of comics we write out of a place of of enjoying comics as a medium and as a as a an art form uh and so to hear that that joy is spreading to others is it's a real big deal it's something that's that's great to hear it absolutely is, yeah. And and talking of love of comics, you you mentioned in your intro as well. You've um you've written a, a story for Bun and Tea, which is the new Kickstarter anthology uh, that's uh, been run by Claire Napier. What can you tell us about your story in that? Uh, so uh, it's a short it's a it's a shorter story than some of the others in the the anthology. It's only going to be about six pages spread across the the overall six issues that are planned. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a page per issue, and it's it's about a a young trans girl who is coming into her own and discovering the power of her identity and what that means for her. Um, it's 
a light tail that I wanted to have stakes, but I didn't want those stakes to be too heavy or to be too fraught, I guess, with questions of identity, because that's something that uh, trans people deal with all the time. Uh, we, we are constantly tasked to write about or create art about uh, the, the things in our life which define our, who we are as trans people. Uh, and I wanted to do that in a way that was uplifting and not harmful to people who are like me. That sounds like a, a, big, a big thing to take on for your first comic. If you don't mind and, me saying that is, and, and to do it in six pages, yeah, yeah that's a lot yeah. of responsibility. I like you know, that ambition, then. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Lucy, have you? Do you ever read Bunty comic when you were younger? No, actually, I wasn't really. I was quite a tomboy, so I probably did the reverse and sort of sought out more the stuff that the the lads were reading than yeah. the girls. Actually, I mean, I de- I went to a girls' school, so I had to read a lot of sort of "Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret," and all these kind of like literature, daft girl stuff that I, I felt really didn't speak to me in any way whatsoever. Yeah. I grew up in a pub as well, so oh I wow, grew up with like oh gosh, strippers, comedians, comics, all yeah. sorts of mad stuff going on. So I wasn't having a sort of bunty life. Yeah. <laughs> In London in the 70s, it really just made no sense to me. So yeah. I was all Beano. Um, just like, yeah, Hagar the Horrible in the back of the Sun newspaper kind of thing. Yes, right, of yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Calvin and Hobbes, definitely. I was yeah. probably more Calvin than Bunty, definitely. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I sort of, I kind of regret that in some way because I, I know a lot of people that really enjoyed it at the time and I think you retrospectively it's just even harder to sort of get your head around it but mm. yeah I know I was very much seeking out a more probably a more male-led path in comics then and it, that changed much more obviously as I grew older. I feel like if you had to write a book about your early days more Calvin than Bunty is a good title <laughs> for it which I think you can, you can kind of take that. <laughs> Definitely keep that in mind. Yeah yeah. <laughs> Although um, I'm not the master of short form, but you know, no, is, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, they they are master for those comic strips, aren't they? Amazing, yeah. Yeah. And um, well, as this um, podcast goes live, if I've got my maths correct, which I probably don't, however, I will I will stick with it. Um, Bun and Tea Kickstarter has nine days left um, on it, and um, the reason I mentioned Bun Tea for those listening uh, is because Bun and Tea is. Um, not only is it a play on words on the title of Bunty, which is a British, um, you know, predominantly for girls, uh, Matt, yeah. like new comic comic uh, anthology, a bit like kind of I assume it's the, you know, the the alternative for boys, quote unquote, at the time would have been like 2000 AD or uh, Roy of the Rovers, like soccer kind of comic or football comic. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but Bun and T is um, a fantastic looking anthology that uh, that Claire Napier has, uh, has edited and. Um, and you know we've got a story called True Name, which is illustrated by uh, Willow Tomio, um, and uh, and that's on there as well. So that's I'm really excited to to read your story and all the others as well. I'm I'm really excited to get it out there. So Lucy, um, 
Sparking is your debut graphic novel. Um, yes. It's um, as you say, it's gone to pre-order now through Unbound. Um, yes. And on Unbound, it's described as a graphic novel about grief, madness and the ghosts that haunt us, um, yes. which, you know, I don't know what it is about you two, but you've picked, you know, a hell of a subject <laughs> to, to kind of for your first story. There's a lot of what Nola's said that I really, um, really sympathise with and understand, actually, especially about the sort of being honest and vulnerability. Yeah, spoke to me massively. Yeah, well, I was going to say this sounds like this is an important book for you to to write. Yeah, I think it was it's a sort of an exorcism. I think I've got uh, other stories to tell, certainly of a more light hearted slant. But I felt like this was one that I just had to get out of my system. And I've always had a problem. I was, I was an animator before I went into comics and I've always had long form ideas. I've always struggled to do sort of shorter ones. So naturally, my first one was like this rambling, epic kind of yeah. graphic novel. But um, yeah, no, it's because it's based on a kind of personal experience uh, mixed in with stuff that happened to friends and research but it felt like at the moment the time is kind of really right to talk about these things and do it through through a graphic through a comic you know mm. well that yeah what, that was what I was going to ask actually what what is it about now that is the time to do that for you like not only in kind of uh the public you know in the kind of the wider social aspect but also for you personally I think well so I'm this, so Barking is based on when I was uh, 23, I was living in New Zealand. My mum's a Kiwi and I'd sort of gone off to discover my roots and found bartending and snowboarding, as, as you do. Yeah. <laughs> I was having a great time. <laughs> <It was really laughs> uh, but um, my dad died really suddenly of a brain aneurysm and he was really young. He was only like 54, super healthy. No one saw it coming. It was like a birth defect so effectively he could have died at 12 21 you know so 54 suddenly seems quite old in comparison but at the time it was just a huge shock and uh it took me after the finally getting the phone call it took me about another got 50 hours or so to actually get back to london so it's this really sort of traumatic experience which granted everyone's going to find that really a difficult thing to deal with but my problem came about 18 months later and I think a lot of people don't talk about with grief especially kind of traumatic grief is how long it resonates and how it develops into mental health problems so for me I found myself about a year and a half or so later in a really dark place and not coping at all and I guess barking is my way of talking about how I got to that place and how I, get, I was a really kind of angry grief um I was doing kind of really dull things and I cut a really unsympathetic figure so I was a really difficult person to help as well mm. and I think uh, in our 20s we kind of are you know we're kind of like teenagers but we've got all this responsibility and all this difficult sort of things to deal with and life's just happening at us and we don't necessarily know how to cope with it and I guess I'm in my 40s now so I'm kind of 20 years on 
and I see it still happening with lots of people and still struggling and I just wanted to talk about it more and I look this is what I went through and I know other people do and you know you might look someone might look a certain way on the outside but what's going on on the inside could be completely different. Mm. It's still got a hell of a stigma to it as well, hasn't it, in in popular culture like this? Hugely, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, there's also, you know, I I think it's every, you know, every country deals with it differently. But I think, uh, you know, the the traditional or stereotypical British way is to kind of just, you know, slip up a lip and and have a point and get over it kind of thing. Yeah, don't dwell on it, you know, live your life. And uh, yeah. the Kiwis aren't much better, to be fair. Right, right. They're much the same. And, you know, I think it, we we do have this tendency to sort of, everyone kind of expects you to be fine about a month later. And mm. you should just be, you know, getting on with your life. And, yeah, it was sad, but, you know, things happen. And yeah. it's just, obviously, it's not how, you know, I still feel it 20 years on. And I don't think there'll be a day in my life I don't feel it. And it was more about coming to terms with that. And I think that's, the other thing, you know, we don't really talk about not only the mental health aspect, but grief and how messy it is and how long it resonates and how much it changes your perspective on life and who you are. You know, I think it's a really important side of life. You know, we're, we're all going to die. We're all going to experience death. And most of us are going to experience mental health problems. So it's just ludicrous that it's just not something that's a wider conversation on a daily basis, frankly. Yeah. Do you think those the years is that you've lived since, you know, so you say it was like nearly 20 years ago that you dealt with this. Yeah. Did you, yeah. Do, you, do you think it's taken that long for you to be able to to write a book like this? Definitely. Definitely. Mm. I've met a lot of people who've spoken to me and they're in the, the grip of going through a similar situation or dealing with something quite big in their lives. And I couldn't have written about it at the time. There's just not not a chance on earth. You need to be able to separate and I think also be honest. I think this is what, what Nola was saying was the thing I've really struggled with because there's stuff I want to put down honestly, but I was having to put down sides of myself and things that happened to me that left me feeling massively vulnerable. You know, I'm quite good at protecting myself and it was like do I really want to just lay this out and it's like yeah I have to I have to put it out there and I don't think I could have done that at the time or Mm. had a a, yeah an honest perspective about the fact that you just don't see things changing as much and how much you're going to come to terms with it so I think yeah the time is a healer it's really true and it does yeah it does give you that that space to kind of also to go back into it you know I had to relive a lot of stuff and it was quite painful to do so but my life is so different now that I could do that without worrying that I was going to fall back into the same kind of traps again as well yeah so you're able to kind of get that perspective of of distance that you you wouldn't have had you know even 10 years ago potentially yeah for sure absolutely Mm. what made the you know, you said you obviously you've got um, past history with being an animator. So that kind of lends that, you know, that almost answers this question. But what made a graphic novel the, the right format for this story for you? I, I guess I, I it was always going to be from the start. So I was teaching. I've always read comics from day one and I was teaching life drawing. And I had uh, Nick Abadzis, who wrote Andrew Leica, uh, which won an Eisner, and he's mm. written Doctor Who and all sorts. So he came into my evening life class and I had to teach him <laughs> life drawing, which um, 
you don't teach you know the man can draw already so we just obviously <laughs> work together and it's amazing talking to him because he edited at 2000 AD you know he's a real kind of stalwart of the British comics industry so mm. it was really great chatting to him and I'd sort of been pondering kind of ideas about comics and what I would do and I sort of m- muted in a couple of ideas that I had and he was just like just do it just sit down and do it and then my partner suggested I was struggling to kind of I was teaching and animating, but I was working as an illustrator animator. So I wasn't directing my own work. I was feeling really frustrated with that. And I think ultimately I realised that I'm a bit of a control freak. <laughs> <laughs> my work and I wasn't happy doing other people's stuff, but I didn't do very commercial work. So animation was kind of like everyone wanted quite cutesy or yeah an element like my work is quite dark and it just wasn't working for that whereas with comics I knew I could just go for it and people would be much more accepting about the visual language I wanted and they wouldn't be scared of it being a dark subject so it was just always a natural fit really for me it was never going to be anything else although admittedly when I was drawing it it is quite animated in my head so I was having to think of it in terms of um, uh, keyframes and trying to break that down into panels because it, it does move in my head definitely right. yeah so those skills definitely helped you when it came to kind of layout and, and structure yeah, of the page and... sure. well I was a 2d animator particularly so you right. know it was all about drawing keyframes and yeah finding that I had to really learn my craft whilst doing it same with Nola with the writing it was in it at the deep end yeah. about pagination and panels and I found a really ludicrous long way of doing my <laughs> panels that I will not do again I've learned my lesson yeah <laughs> I've learned I've learned a lot of hard lessons actually <sighs> but um hopefully it won't show too much in the final product <laughs> oh, yeah and it's um it's on pre-order now obviously it's uh, it's through the Unbound um website so for people who don't uh, no Unbound. It's um, it's sort of like Kickstarter, but obviously it's run by a publisher. It's a publishing house that yeah. um, that is crowdfunded. It's it, and it's curated. So unlike Kickstarter, you can't set up an Unbound crowdfunder. So mm. you have to pitch it to the editors. Uh, there's one graphic novel editor currently at Unbound, which is Lizzie Kay. Mm. So you pitch it to Lizzie Kay, and if she likes it, she'll talk to you about. Um, launching the product so they'll launch the campaign they'll host and make you a video but it's up to you the creator to to get all the money in and then once you're 100% funded they kick in as a more traditional publisher so they'll get me into all the sort of big bookshops and sort out foreign rights things like that so I don't have to do any of the actual logistical stuff at the end of it. So it's been a lot of, you know, it's been enjoyable to to kind of work with them. It's it's a very different kind of way of of, of doing something, isn't it? Because it is, it, it almost sounds like it is the best of both worlds, really. You know, you've got that kind of support and structure of a publisher, but you've also got the, you know, the crowdfunding aspects, which, you know, at, you, you're successful with it now. You're, I think I, I looked, it's 107%, 109% funded. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I mean, that's that's proof to you as well that, you know, there is an audience for your book. Yeah, it was amazing to do it that way. I mean, it was really hard and it took two years to um, get fully funded. So I've been working it like mad 
I also got a Arts Council England grant and support from the Lakes Comic Art Fest. So I think without those, I would have probably had another two years crowdfunding. <laughs> but I've made some just incredible uh, connections. I've got more work off the back of it. So it's really kind of launched a whole career for me. So yeah. I'm really, really grateful for it. And Lizzie was at Self Made Hero and Titan. So she's got such a big knowledge about the kind of books that I'm interested in. She's worked on some of my favourite graphic novels. So yeah. it's such a pleasure to work with her as well. So Lizzie's yeah, great, yeah. It's really awesome. And and she really got the project from the art, you know, she really empathised with it. And I, I couldn't be happier, really. It's great. That's awesome. So that's Barking and that is um, on pre-order now so people can head to Unbound, they can find Barking, they can put an order in for a digital copy or a hardcover copy. Um, yeah. So that's that's wonderful. Brilliant. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So um, I've brought you both onto the show to... Um, not only to talk about you and the things that uh, the things that you're up to at the moment, but also to get to know you as comics fans as well. Um, and um, I've asked you both to bring comics with you uh, that are your that are important to you. Um, but before we begin, we we both you know you both um, Nola and you Lucy have both kind of do, do talked about honesty in comics and kind of like that you know vulnerability that you've you've both brought to your own creations. Um, but I mean Nola, I'll ask you first how you know how much do you gravitate towards that kind of honesty in the comics that you read? Oh, hundred uh, percent. Something that, and something that I, I especially spent more time thinking about since I started working as a critic and writing as a critic is uh, how well a comic communicates a given idea, how clearly it does so. Um, because I think that that's really the goal is, you know, when you're making art, especially when you're making sequential art, you're telling a story, you're communicating an idea, and you have to be able to do that authentically. And I found uh, I actually had some trouble picking, you know, deciding what comic I wanted to bring because I've had so much of what I grew up with and what was important to me. Uh, I've gone back and reread it with this training that I didn't have when I was younger, and I found that it really didn't hold up on the reread. Uh, things that might have been exciting to me as a kid or might have been interesting to me, when I went back, I found that they were not as ex- not as well executed as they could have been, um, or I find you know, as I grow, as I grow older and as I grow more politically aware and socially conscious and things like that, I find that uh, there are conservative, more conservative ideas that I'm not a fan of in some of these comics. Mm. Um, and I tend to shy away from that stuff uh, because I, you know, I believe in, in connecting people and I believe in reaching a hand down to, to help up the people who are behind you is a good way to put it. Uh, and so I tend to gravitate towards comics that, that, that communicate ideas along those lines <laughs> Um, or at the very least, examine what happens both when that is done and when it is not done. Is that something that is easy to find in com in superhero comic books, especially, but just generally in um, in comics of a certain age? It is far more difficult than you would think. Mm. Um, uh, it is easier in comics of a certain age, to a certain extent, because. Uh, comics are inherently like they have a very kind of uh, liberal leftist origin story. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they they started out as very anti-fascist. They started out as very uh, for the working class. 
So they have that baked into their DNA. But at the same time, uh, there are a lot of really prominent authors and artists who are very conservative um, and who have certainly made some headlines for themselves in the last couple of years. And those authors or those creators have uh, had a very strong hand in some of the major properties that people think of when they think of comics. Um, you know, so you've got your Batman and you've got, uh, you know, most of your Marvel properties. Uh, you've got, you know, your your Marvel movies, which are massively popular, but also have a massively pro-military bend to them. Mm. It's inescapable, I think, to, 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 you know, that those those politics are inescapable. You cannot make comics. You cannot write comics without grappling with those questions in some capacity. It's 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 that that really, really basic art 101 thing where all art is political, you know? Yeah. All choices are political. Everything you do is political to an extent. And, and uh, I think comics allows introspection along that along that line. Uh, it allows you to examine what is political about those choices. And um, I think if you're writing from a place of emotional honesty, I think that that's where you get your best work. Yeah. Yeah, I 100% agree. Yeah. And what about you, Lucy? Is that something that you look for when you're seeking out comics? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really, I don't read a lot of superhero comics. I've got to admit, I've got very mm. few work from any of the big two. That it's not really a kind of line I go to. I do, I read Dark Horse stuff. I love Black Hammer, so it's about as close as I get to a mm. superhero comic. And I don't think it's technically even really one of those. But I read a lot of small press stuff, so I read a lot of people just absolutely always writing for the heart. I read a lot of zines and, you know, I, I struggle, I think, to, to read other stuff because everything I'm reading is so personal and it means so much to people. And it's such an intimate experience that, yeah, I get really kind of miffed and disinterested if I'm reading something and it just doesn't have that touch of truth in it. So I think if you're not writing from honesty or experience or something some touch of truth you can be as outlandish as you want but it's got to be based in something to, for me to to be drawn in and it, i think it shows really quickly if it isn't mm. yeah and i think that's why it's more important than ever to you know to to have so many voices out there so many kind of diverse voices that have you know everyone's got a story you know and it needs to to be constantly presented with you know the story of of you know a cishet white man it's it's yeah. there's only so many stories you can tell in that you know yeah. and, and to be able to to experience the lives of others through the stories they tell they tell and the way they tell those stories it's um you know it, it, that's 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 you know what why wouldn't you want that you know absolutely so um Nola, Seriously. what um what what book have you brought with you to uh to talk about so uh I brought uh, Uncanny X-Men 173, mm. uh, which is was published in, I think, 1983. Oh, wow, okay. I'm running, I'm running, running off of memory here um, because I've got to – let me see. Yep, 1983. So that, the year I was born, that was cool. Okay. Um, it's like dead in the middle of Claremont's 17-year run. Um, it is – the second part of a two-part story, and uh, I got my copy in an antique store when I was like eight. It was oh, wow. in 
it was in some bin uh and you know they were selling them for a quarter <laughs> and so i just got this stack of random x-men issues and uh that was that was it for me i was in uh, i was hooked and it, it like I, I talked earlier about how uh, I've gone back to a lot of comics that I read as a kid and now they didn't hold up. Mm. Um, and this particular issue, I mean, Claremont in general, but this particular issue specifically uh, really has. Uh, it's really strong. It's something that I go back to as a platonic ideal of what it is to make a good standalone comic. Yeah. I don't know what it is about the X-Men, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of people of our generation where the X-Men was their kind of gateway and it never seems to be from one specific place. You know, some people talk about the, the X-Men cartoon. Some people talk about, um, you know, hand-me-downs or, you know, finding, uh, you know, as you did find a book, you know, in, you know, in a charity shop, just, you know, for a quarter and it just happens to be this comic that you pick up and it's the X-Men. Um, but there were, you know, they were very influential on people, um, you know, people today that are in the comics industry, you know, whether they're creators or critics, it's there's there's a you know predominantly there's a, there's quite a lot of people that are that are strong X Men fans when they were growing up. Even I like the uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I absolutely think that's true. Um, uh, I have a great many thoughts as to why that's the case. I've written you know a bunch of essays about it. Uh, I think it comes down to a question uh, I wrote recently uh, that. It's X-Men is about is about harm. Mm, uh, uh, yeah, I read that. So people may agree or not agree. I don't know. Uh, for me, the super the superheroics, the 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 drama and the soap opera aspects of X-Men, uh, they're great and they're fun, but they're always secondary to what's going on, which is the question of harm. Uh, X-Men has always been about you know the 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 core concept was you know mutants struggling to save a, a protect to protect a world that hates and fears them, which tells you what you need you have people who are trying to do good who are trying to mitigate harm in the face of an actively hostile population and and you know you you have to ask what that means you have to ask is it worth it you have to ask what does it cost uh and i think that the best x-men comics have always asked that question. I think that they've always uh, stepped up to kind of dive into that, that even when the answer's not clear. Um, and it helps that it had one author for, like I said, 17 years, uh, and that that author was, by and large, allowed to explore those concepts in a way that I don't even necessarily think is allowed at the big two these days. Mm. So you think there's like there's an honesty to, to Claremont's work that is kind of lacking in today's superhero comics uh i think so. i i absolutely uh do think so if only for the reason that marvel comics in the 1980s was not owned by disney uh right. dc comics in the 1980s was not owned by uh at&t or warner brothers they were successful operations they were successful companies but they were not beholden to the kind of large omnipresent multimedia presence that uh that they are these days yeah and and i suppose to to extend that as well is the idea that x-men weren't wasn't the the popular comic that it was that it is today like it wasn't it was almost the the series that they they could experiment on because it wasn't i suppose it probably was when when this issue came out because claremont had been writing for a few years at that point but 
when he first started writing it, it was just coming off being, you know, cancelled or in reprints, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah, it spent like thirty uh, some odd issues in reprints, and it was it was very much not popular in its first iteration. I went to a few creative teams. It never really caught on because they couldn't really figure out what they were doing with it. Uh, and when Claremont came in, he, I mean, he honestly, he threw out almost the entire book. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kept Cyclops and Professor X and stuff like that. But like he threw out most of the original team. Uh, he, he built an entirely new team with uh, voices from different places around the world. And for all that he himself was a cisette white man, did his best to give those those voices the chance to speak and i think that was a big part of why it was successful uh we talk about representation in comics a lot these days claremont was doing his best to provide that yeah decades ago yeah it's, i mean it's it's definitely the x-men at their core is always about that the analog for you know the struggling minority which is which has been you know taken and adapted by different groups over the years as well but as you say like claremont was you know just a white guy writing comics at the time but he as you say he threw out the the team which were all kind of white teenagers he threw almost all of them out literally in in, in some cases and mm-hmm. you know brought in this team that was was diverse it was international it was this team that um we're all struggling with different social problems, different personal problems. Um, and it was, you know, a, a book of misfits um, for, for a while. They all had their own kind of personal issues and stuff. And I think that made a very for, for a very kind of brave and an almost kind of vulnerable book, really, wasn't it? it was, you know, a vulnerable team, certainly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like I said, uh, it comes down to the question of harm. Everyone he brought in, every character he created had their own baggage uh some of that was related to the fact that they were mutants some of it wasn't some of it was just related to who they were as people to things that happened to them outside of being a mutant storm's claustrophobia is a great example uh you know the fact that she was uh, on the streets of cairo despite the fact that she was actually an american citizen i i, I think that's what it was her parents are from america yeah, she was born right, there, yeah. but then uh, she was a child and she ended up on alone on the streets of Cairo. And like, that's a lot for a person to deal with on top of the fact that like suddenly finding out that you have these powers, which are cool, but also make you part of one of the most ostracized groups in the world. Mm. So like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of meat. There's a lot of stuff there to work with. Uh, and he did that, you know, over and over again. Uh, he wasn't always super successful. Uh, there were definitely things that, uh, certainly have not aged well mm. uh, some of kitty pride's speeches on race uh are very cringeworthy to look to look at these days yeah his entire handling of thunderbird and things like that not super great so you know you've got stuff like that uh but i think that he he was really trying in a way that maybe not everybody was back then yeah and lucy you said you're even you're a fan of the x-men yeah, yeah. I mean, I wasn't big on the comics, but I de- definitely watched the cartoon quite a lot. And I think it's for that. It felt like it wasn't just coming from one angle, you know, and there were actually characters that were screwing up. You know, they were a bit more interesting. They weren't just, you know, moping, moping kind of vigilantes or aliens born with innate moral powers. It was something a bit more complicated and interesting than that. But for me, it was it was mainly the cartoons. It was a lot of kind of 
cool comics that would turn into cartoons on MTV and stuff. I remember like The Tick and mm. gosh, what was I can't remember what it's called now. It was this giant purple rabbit thing. The Max. The Max. That's it. <laughs> the Max. It was all that kind of time. All those kind of comics were like yeah. really cool cartoons on MTV and stuff. So yeah, yeah. No, I I, I get the love of X Men and I'm kind of really interested now. I might have to seek that um comic out check it out sounds really yeah. fascinating yeah so what was it about this i mean i know this was one of your first issues that you bought um nola but how has it um stood the test of time for you why is it still something that you um you go back to today uh i think a lot of it is just because it's got so much going on uh in the space of it um so like i said it's the second part of a of a two-parter it's uh in the the issue prior Wolverine is traveling to Japan to to get married. You know, as as these things often turn out to be, uh, there's a trap laid for them. Uh, the X Men get gassed and disappear, or something along those lines. I I can't remember the issue prior because I never had it as a kid. I've only mm. read it a couple of times. Uh, whereas this one, I've read you know, dozens and dozens. Uh, so the issue starts with Wolverine and Rogue who I didn't even know at the time had just joined the team. Right. Uh, like, this is two issues after she joins the team, and she started out as a villain. Like, Rogue's origin story is her history with Captain Marvel. Like, she popped up working with Mystique, and they attacked Carol Danvers. This, I'm calling her Captain Marvel, but she wasn't even Captain Marvel then. She was Ms. Marvel. So, like, Rogue was very prominently known by readers as a villain, and she just joined the team. And it, it's it's interesting because it's just these two. It's just Wolverine and Rogue. Uh, Wolverine doesn't trust her, but tr- uh, Professor X has said that she's staying, so he's going to give her a chance. Uh, and so it's a very tense dynamic as they are uh, doing their best to kind of sort out the mystery of what's going on with the team. So there's a lot of a lot of really uh, fascinating dynamics to read through there uh especially when you're eight years old like there's a great scene where uh rogue goes to kiss wolverine in thanks for something and you know obviously you don't want to be kissed by rogue that's a bad idea uh <laughs> but she's she's still a teenage girl and she's like she's almost forgotten at this point you know like she's she's just so swept up in the moment and um he has to stop her uh he, he does so in typical wolverine fashion he's got his fist under her jaw and he just says no and like the threat is implicit because he's got those claws, right? He hasn't he mm. hasn't unsheathed them, but but the threat is implicit there. Yeah. Uh, she's you know she apologizes and she's she's genuinely sorry, and and he literally tells her he's like yeah that's why you're still breathing. It's interesting because it's this very classic tough guy dynamic, but mm. at the same time he's he's showing a level of compassion for her situation that was very deftly handled. Uh, he gets to be Wolverine. And everything that that reputation implies, but it's also one of the earlier instances of him doing that kind of mentoring thing that he does with newer team members. Yeah. Um, and you know, let's be honest, especially teenage girls, because mm-hmm. Claremont loved to pair Wolverine with teenage girls. <laughs> it became a thing, um, didn't it? <laughs> it really, really did. Um, you know, he got to do that some with Kitty. Uh, Rogue was a different thing altogether because Rogue started out a villain, so. She's got a different dynamic uh, that I think is very interesting. So 
The other half of this issue is uh, Storm is running around Japan with uh, a, a friend of Wolverine's named Yukio, and she's grappling with a lot too. Uh, this is right after the Brood Saga. Uh, Storm has had to kill a few Brood uh, in in their escape from those things, aliens, whatever. You know, the Brood. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah. So she's dealing with a lot of moral questions and things like that um and this is kind of where that comes to a head uh and it's actually the first appearance of of storm in her uh punk outfit with the mohawk and the 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 leather and all of that mm, iconic. Uh, this is the issue yeah this is the issue where that first turns up and i had no idea that it was as iconic as it was uh mm. all i saw was somebody going through something incredibly difficult and finding a way to make that work, uh, finding a way to incorporate a new understanding of themselves and presenting that unapologetically to the people around them. And as a trans person, you can imagine how important that was to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, this is I'm eight years old. I don't even have an inkling of what it means to be trans yet or, or any of this. Uh, I don't have the language for it. Mm. What I see, though, is something that became a real a real model for me going forward for how to deal with change and how to be honest with yourself uh yeah. you know she made it very clear that this was a journey for her uh and that she was trying something new because what she had been doing prior was not working um yeah. and not everyone takes it well kitty and storm have a very close relationship kitty really looks up to storm and when she first sees storm show up looking like this she is uh she's mortified she's upset she's she's yelling at, uh, at storm she runs off crying it's it's a real big thing um and i really appreciated that about it because there's an honesty in that too there's a, a you know sometimes when you have something like that not everyone is going to take it well and i mean most times someone is always going to say you know this is not okay with me and for all that that is a near universal experience, it's not something you see reflected in comics really that much. Yeah. And it's also got that mass, amazing Paul Smith art as well, which kind of just brings the whole issue alive, really, doesn't it? Paul Smith is my my definitive X-Men artist. When I think of the X-Men, I think of Paul Smith art. Yeah, uh, I can see that. And it's, it's, it's honestly funny because uh, there are, about four pages in this issue uh that i like were some of my favorite growing up and that's that fight with wolverine and the silver samurai yeah uh, the silent pages yeah and they're 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 gripping and they're fantastic and uh at the same time they're like as much as that i think of them when i think of paul smith art they're kind of a riff on frank miller because he did something very similar in the wolverine miniseries just a couple years prior yeah and it is a a, a... A successor to that story as well really isn't it? it follows yeah. on from that really yeah absolutely it's it there's just so much going on um you know there's the 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 way that rogue proves herself by jumping in front of a bullet meant for wolverine mm. um and you know this is before x-men power creep too this is when wolverine couldn't heal from anything you know even rogue actually gets kind of ko'd here uh and that's not stuff that you would have seen in the 90s and onward because you know, I guess it would happen in the cartoon a lot because, you know, uh, those dramatic moments where where Jean loved to faint or something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. But in the comics, especially as the 90s were creeping on, it was very much everyone is more and more powerful to almost absurd degrees. Mm. 
and uh, Claremont really let his characters have a lot of vulnerability in these issues. Mm. And I think that this is a really great example of that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a really good issue. And it's a hell of an issue for, as you say, like for the first one you kind of picked up, almost one of the first comics you ever read happened to be, you know, such a such a great issue. Normally, when you, you know, you just randomly pick up a comic as a kid, it's it could be any old thing, couldn't it? <laughs> you know, so to find something so good is, uh, you know, I'm so I'm, I'm not surprised you're still like into comics today. Yeah, well, and and you know, it's it's there's a there's a sense when there's when it, when a comic has been running for a long time, there's this idea that it's intimidating to to break into them, mm-hmm. to pick something up. Like you find a lot of people these days uh, with X Men who are like, where do I start? What do I do? There's so much of it. Yeah. And uh, this really helped me because one, I was too young to really feel that. You know, I was just I was just a kid and like I saw books and they were exciting. And so I was in. Yeah. Uh, and two, there's another great scene in this book that that kind of comments on that, which is uh, towards the end when they're gearing up for the actual wedding and Scott shows up with Madeline Pryor. Uh, and there's this great bit where Kitty uh, has to go help with the wedding. So she leaves Lockheed uh, wrapped in like swaddled like a baby in Madeline's arms. <laughs> and Madeline thinks it is a baby until she goes to like open it up and lock it and she finds this purple dragon like curled up asleep in her arms and it's it's a great comedy because she like she just looks up and she 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 says Scott's name uh, as he's talking to somebody else and then she grabs his tie and she yanks him over <laughs> and she's like who are these people and what have you gotten me into <laughs> and it's such a great scene because uh, one, it's just it's a solid classic comedy beat, and two, it's a great way to tell the reader that it's okay to not know what what's going on. It's yeah. it's it's okay to not know who all of these people are. You'll find out. You'll mm-hmm. figure it out. Just have fun, and and I think that it's a perfect issue for that uh, because it lets you do that while also giving you all of these stakes and all of these emotional touch points and. Yeah, I mean that's I guess that's the reason that it's, it's stuck with me for so long. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good issue. Um, but Lucy, we'll move on to you then. Now, um, we're all, you're also taking us back to 1983. For yeah, your choice, I, um, <laughs> yeah, which uh, although I didn't read it then, to be fair. No, the collected I think sort of 97, 90, well, no, it'd been earlier than that, 96 maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So what uh, what have you brought with you to talk about today? So I I also struggled to be fair. It's a really big thing to sort of whittle down. It is um, a it is a big ask. It's always a big <laughs> question to ask people. Yeah. I think it's going to depend on the day and the mood. Oh yeah, totally. What, what you're working on. I think because I've been working in lots of black and white as well. So I bought Domu, Dreams of the Children, which is um by Katsuhiro Otomo, who everyone probably more knows for Akira. Mm. And rightly so, Akira's incredible. Um, but this is a more, uh, less sprawling a story than Akira. And it's a really concise and kind of almost perfectly formed single narrative, I think. It's a really astonishing piece of work. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I love this choice because it's, it led me to, to track it down. I managed to find a copy on eBay. Oh, um, well. And, um, it was something that I, you know, I, it's kind of been on my radar because I was, I'm, I'm a huge Akira fan. So I knew that he'd had 
other other works like this but tracking down his his work is is really difficult isn't it yeah anything that's not akira it's so funny because um I, I totally stumbled on it and I stumbled on it off the back of Akira. So I was buying, there was like a collective kind of manga um, magazine that was in WH Smith's in the 90s. Mm. And I would pick them up, um, my 2000 AD, and that was always there. So I started reading it and I got into like sort of Appleseed and some of those stuff. Mm. And then our, the Prince Charles cinema was always playing Akira. So we went and watched Akira and it just blew my mind. I'd never seen anything of the like and it's probably one of the key reasons I wanted to be an animator if I'm honest because mm. who doesn't see that and go oh my god you can do that yeah. with a pencil yeah. you know so and then I sort of went almost straight out of so Prince Charles Cinema is in Leicester Square and I went from there straight around the corner to Covent Garden to Forbidden Planet mm. and was looking for the Akira comics but actually found Domo and thought oh hold on what's this and it had a really the version here had a really striking cover with just a little girl standing in front of a kind of Escher cube that's wow. a version of this housing estate. And I was sort of sold on the cover and so glad I picked it up now because <laughs> it's really hard to find. But just an utterly seminal work. And I read it, at, I must have been about 17 or something, 17, 18 when I read it. And it stuck with me my whole life you know it's something I go back to all the time and I refer to it constantly Mm. yeah extraordinary extraordinary work so why is that then why do you think you you go back to it I think because it mixes I mean there was a few things I found really surprising to start off with and one was I was getting sort of increasingly obsessed with Japan and I'd become into it with that way that a lot of people do through the kind of more ancient culture and thinking that it was going to be this super clean, super kind of organised world that everyone lived in, and finding out that through something like Domu, that actually all the mundanities still existed. You know, housewives stood around gossiping, kids were still bored and playing football, and there was always someone odd on the estate that everyone's kind of gossiping about. And life is exactly the same, you know, and I think it was that, and the fact that he drew... Japanese people looking like Japanese people I was I'm you know I like manga but I'm really put off by kind of the cutesy side of it you know Mm. I'm really obsessed with kind of proper drawing so his draftsmanship is second to none in many ways so it was sort of a combination with that but I love the mixture of kind of mundane everyday life with utterly extraordinary occurrences and that kind of magical realism it really appealed to me from quite a young age, I think. I um my favourite of like um his faces that he draws are the ones where it's like the the kind of the the obstinate or the grumpy face with like the, <laughs> the bottom the the jaw that sticks out and it's yeah. just like the kind of it's almost like the jaw and the eyebrows like kind of yeah. converge and a point and it's just Yeah, it does that's... a perfect what what are you gonna do about it face? Like, yeah. And it will give you pause, pause for thought. You think, well, am, am, am I going to take this person on? Would I take that person on? You know, are they giving me an affront? And he does an amazing kind of slightly bored, slightly intrigued thinking face where, mm. you know, especially all his policemen, they're just beautifully realised where they're just, his key framing and expressions are just so subtle, but so perfect. You can look at it and 
go, yeah, I've met that policeman or I've seen that group of mums standing in the playground having a little gossip. You know, all the body language is just so gorgeously observed and it, it's really subtle, but you, you feel instantly like you know where you are. You know, I never at that point, I'd never been to Japan, but I still felt like I'd stepped foot in it and I understood it completely, you know. Um, and I think that's a real underappreciated skill that someone can make you feel so at home in a completely alien environment that quickly. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, the, the the book itself is a genuine delight, really, because, as you say, the the things that I think that um, Otomo is so skilled at is that small character moments. Yeah. Um, and I think as Akira progresses, you know, as the story gets bigger and the, the scope of it gets larger and larger, like he never loses touch with that, but it doesn't become the primary focus of, you know, later yeah. volumes. Yeah, Whereas it, does, it gets left behind, I think, a little in the, the main. It gets about the spectacle with Akira. Yeah. Um, whereas I think the charm of it is at the start where they're just these like runaway teams being mm. naughty and got their motorbikes. I think the way that's animated and realised is stunning. But yeah, I agree. It's It's definitely contained throughout you don't forget who the characters are throughout of Dover. you never forget even if they seem they're extraordinary or something's happened to them that shouldn't be i don't want to give any plot spoilers away it's such a great book yeah but there's still those characters there's still you know a child an old man a policeman a housewife they never lose that element of their core being yeah it is it is more you know, it does it does obviously take on fantastical elements as well, but it is much more grounded story. You know, it is set in and around just an apartment complex. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which and is... to do that amongst one single environment, and yet it doesn't do justice to how exciting the panels are and yeah. the angles you take. There's a kind of aerial battle at one point across the housing estate that it just beggars belief how he sat down and drew that because it's drawn sort of upside down and sideways and there's no respect for gravity or anything and it's just this beautiful <laughs> kind of graphic sense and you feel every kind of thud against the wall and every feel of um what's happening within the battle yeah is this something that been on your radar nola is this something uh, you're aware of no it's uh it's i have not, absolutely never heard of this before uh mm. As soon as you mentioned it, I went looking it up on eBay myself, and uh, <laughs> yeah, you were kidding about how it's hard to get hold of. It's yeah, nearly impossible, isn't it? I mean, the yeah. I had to look up um, this as well because I wanted to know if it was just this volume or if this was something that was a curse of uh, Atomo's work. Um, and the they're releasing like a 4K Ultra HD version of Akira next year. And, yeah. um, and he's announced that he's working on an anime which is going to adapt the full manga. So the anime series is going to go from start to finish because the, the film really only covers the first kind of couple of volumes. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't even really scratch the surface of the, the main thrust of the story. But um, but along with that, Kodansha have said that they are going to be releasing like a complete works um manga volume whether it's one volume or whether it's a series of volumes and that's everything else that he's uh, oh amazing yeah it'd be a real shame to have it kind of just boxed in with a load of other stuff like oh and Mm. there was this because i think it is really a a genuine masterpiece it's you know as a single form idea 
it's astonishing and it's enormous as well i mean it's no less sprawling but yeah. um, you know i guess it would be the equivalent of maybe one of the collected akira volumes yeah it's, it's, so, it's as close to being that thick yeah definitely yeah yeah I mean, if you weren't both so far away, I'd happily lend you my copy. <laughs> Logistically, I can't figure out how that would work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I appreciate I appreciate the thought nonetheless. <laughs> Great. Have you did Have you read Akira or any of Akira, um, Nola? Uh, I haven't read the manga. I've seen the, I've seen the movie, obviously. Um, I I have been eyeballing that uh that box set that came out a couple of years ago. Oh yeah. Mm, very very closely. But yeah, no, it's it's one of those things where it's I kind of it's almost embarrassing to admit that I haven't read it because uh, that, it's, it's such a new... classic piece of comics history and and things and but at the same time like I'm just genuinely interested like I'm excited to finally get my hands on that whenever I'm able to because uh it's it feels like a whole world uh, a whole side of the industry that I've just never been able to properly understand or appreciate, you know? Mm. Like manga in general, you mean? Uh, manga in general, but also Otomo. Um, yeah. Because yeah. I'm like, I've, I've seen one out, I've, I've watched one adaptation of his work. I've never actually read any of his original material. And, and, you know, I've, I've, it's one of those things where it's, you almost don't want to bring that up to people because they're like, Oh, you got to read it. Oh, you got to, you got to try it. And, and, I mean, there's nothing nothing else to say about it. I do. I got yeah. it. Well, I mean, that's that's true, but it's also it's not like it's kind of um, just a slim read in an afternoon no. kind of thing. You know, it's a huge it's, undertaking. It's war and peace. Of yeah. yeah. Manga. Right. I've read only two volumes of Akira, and I just couldn't even afford to keep buying it at that stage. You know, mm. and I probably once I found Dome, we kind of went, okay, I'm you know I'm sort of at peace with this now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think. I mean, again, I'm the same as you. I'm eyeing up that box set, but it's just, uh, you know, when am I going to, with my burgeoning reading list and huge mm. pile of comics, when am I going to get round to have time? I mean, that's like, yeah. that's yep. retirement stuff, isn't it? That's the old people's home. You get yeah, your hero box set and <laughs> settle down into the chair and, yeah. and you know, enjoy <laughs> some very unusual storytelling. Yeah, yes. isn't it like the threat of time to uh, <laughs> to kind of really add a little bit of pressure onto reading it? Yeah. <laughs> you want to be reading shorter stories, then you don't want to you don't want to get halfway through something. Yeah, that's very true. Actually, <laughs> considered that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's such a shame because you know this Domu is is fantastic. I mean, I I, I admit I like, I didn't have time to read all the way through it, but um, I read as much as I could of it, and it's you know it's a so it's a wonderful story and to 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 find like some a creator's work is not just out of print but has suffered from you know very low printing throughout its existence really i mean in yeah this country, it's you know? kind of woefully misread actually it's yeah. uh, underread sorry it's a real i'm really i hadn't realized because it meant so much to me i hadn't realized how little it was printed or how many people had actually read it so I'm kind and of quite pleased to get it out there. <laughs> that's that in itself is kind of fascinating too, because he's got such a reputation. Like, as, especially with Akira, it's one of those things where it's got yeah. such cultural crossover that I'm surprised that no company has 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 jumped on that. You know, yeah. it's like it's all he's known for is Akira, which you know, if you 
I, I read something recently where they were comparing him as a creator to um, like Miyazaki with Studio Ghibli. And it is that it's like you don't just remember, you know, House Moving Castle or Porco Rosso. You know that he's done a million other things as well. And Domo was before Akira as well, so I guess Akira had that enormous, like you said, crossover effect because it completely changed the kind of manga industry here in Britain. Definitely, I mean, it just sort of blew up after the off the back of that, I think, really. But um, yeah, I kind of really feel for him that he got this kind of perfect workout and then went for his sprawling opus, and no one very few people have managed to see how it built to that you know yeah yeah seeing it within the context of his career yeah yeah well I mean I had to look this up as well because obviously you know this is something that's so you know woefully scarce in this country but it's never left print in Japan it's still you know Domu is is still kind of beloved over there it won yeah it's the yeah, it won. It was the it's the first and only comic um, to have won Japan's Science Fiction Award Grand Prix, which is usually given to novels. But in 1983, they gave it to Domu. And a lot of people said that, uh, you know, oh, it, it just must have been like a, a kind of a slow year for science fiction. But the the actual award givers, you know, they said, actually, this is it, it won. It won the award in its own right because it's this you know wonderful story that much like Akira did to, to us over here, opened up a lot of people's eyes to how um, artful uh, manga could be. Yeah. Um, and how, um, you know, so so Otomo is, is kind of revolutionary, not just for us, but for Japan as well, with this idea of being able to take a medium or an art form and, and, and kind of elevate it to the point that everyone can't help but notice. That's amazing. Um, I hope it's also because he reflected real people within his books rather than kind of stylized cat girls or any, you know, kind of more than more outre kind of manga ideas. He kind of it's just normal people that these things happen to. And I think that's the kind of beauty of his work, really. I just put it in for me. I do put it in with the kind of sci fi literature that I love. It's in there with kind of Margaret Atwood and the big books it's one of those that I would put into my big kind of inspirational literature so I'm really glad to hear it was kind of given that elevation it's really wonderful it's even more wild to me that it's so hard to find over here given that history and given given the status that has in Japan not only because it's so popular there but because it's it's essentially done it's done there what Watchmen did here Yeah. Uh, yeah you know you can't bring up Watchmen over here in the states without it seems like without remarking on the fact that it topped that it topped the bestseller list or that it's you know it's on that list of like 100 novels or whatever and it's the only graphic novel that's a very similar status level and it's wild it's wild to me that no one at at whatever publisher decides to localize it that no one has gone this is the watchman of japan yeah that's such an easy selling point that's such an easy tagline yeah, I cannot believe that this book is so hard to find. Well, I think it was, I mean, uh, the one I had was a manga reprint, but I think it was reprinted by Dark Horse Comics as well. So they had a, you know, big enough publisher to really get it out there. And yet. Yeah, that's you know, the version. Um, that's the version I've got off eBay. It's a Dark Horse paperback. Um, yeah. 
it's all um left to right so it's all been flipped um, yeah yeah mine's fully westernized yeah which i think is kind of uh, you know it's it's the curse of you know getting reprints in the you know in the 90s or 2000s yeah and it kind of i mean it's it's a good thing i think because i wouldn't have understood at that age to be able to read it the other way around i mean i made that mistake recently i got go go monster and uh was like it's really kind of um another amazing book that could have been on this choice and i'd read it the wrong way around for about one chapter before i went oh of course it's a manga (laughs) 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 but it was really it's a really kind of another out there story that it could have been read either way and actually worked it's all sort of disembodied voices and stuff so (laughs) it kind of still worked which was sort of testament but I felt like such a an Egypt to get that wrong but it's that I'm so used to the kind of westernized strategy and back yeah doing it one way so I get why they did that and it's nice that they don't do that anymore I think that's really great but you've just got to always keep your head on it I think yeah yeah I was just thinking it would it would be quite the artistic feat uh, to to make a comic that could be read left to right here or le- read left to right in the Western world and then read right to left in the yeah. East still and still make sense both ways. I, yeah, be wild. I'm putting a case for Go Go Monster that I think you could actually do that. <laughs> it would genuinely work because it's sort yep. of. It'd be like watching a time lapse of something either growing up or growing or <laughs> retreating. And, it, you know, that's the time Matsumoto one. He did um, Tekonti Crete as well. Uh, another kind of gorgeously rendered book with, again, children at the source of everything. That sort of um, kids see things that adults kind of miss as we grow up, I think. I've got images of you sat there reading it the wrong way round, thinking, wow, this is this is oh, like gosh. Memento meets Benjamin Button. You know, what what are these what is he trying to tell me here? And, and it's like, actually, you just started from the wrong end. Yeah, but it, it really does work. You'll have to check it out. because It's so hard to describe. But <laughs> I don't have to now, yeah. Because it's sort of it really is. There's a, basically disembodied voices throughout the whole book. So it's whether. I guess it's how he goes on the journey. It's like, does he go on the journey understanding it from the start and sort of lose himself or does he lose himself in the journey? It's um, it's a, It really could be done either way. So I'm going to put that out there. Yeah. <laughs> Although it was much better when I did go back and I went, oh, right, yeah, no, I understand that bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was very tired. My daughter wasn't sleeping very well <laughs> and trying to finish a graphic novel. So, yeah. yeah. True, yeah. More for me for trying to read on my lunch hour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, I um I've taken up far too much of both of your times. Thank you so much um for for joining me for this episode. It's been uh, it's been fantastic. Pleasure chatting. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yeah, definitely. So Bun and Tea is on Kickstarter now. There's still um just over a week left uh, as you're listening to this. Um and Barking is on Unbound, um, which is in the pre-order stage now. So um there's still time to uh, to put your orders in for that as well. But um but Lucy, Nola, thank you very much both and I'll uh, I'll speak to you again soon. All right. Well, thank you. That's the issue is part of the Multiversity Comics Podcast Network. You can find this show and plenty more at multiversitycomics.com. You can subscribe to the show via Apple, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. 
The show is on Twitter at That's The Issue and I'm on there too at Matt Loon. Finally, you can contact the show via email at that's the issue podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.